Welcome to episode 1589 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined, as always, by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing okay. How are you? It looks like, um, you remember early in the film Parasite, when there's mm-hmm. fumigation going on, and they let yes. the stuff come in the windows? Yes. It looks a bit like that in the city of Seattle right now. Yeah. Which, you know... It's hard to know how to judge one's own position in the world relative to other people's right now. We are fortunate in that, like, you know, I'm just sitting in the city, safe and sound. But it's it's eerie, Ben. It's a little bit eerie on Friday. Yeah, I can imagine. Does it look like AT&T Park looked the other night when I would comp it to Blade Runner 2049? Yeah. It had that sort of orange look going, no. or I guess it's not the right time of day to be orange, but what does it look like? Just dark? It is neither that color nor is it that sort of dark and foreboding, but it just looks like a very bad air pollution kind of day, which we don't mm-hmm. typically get here. And, you know, it's uncomfortable if you're outside for any length of time at all. So that's not the best. Well, I guess you're already wearing a mask most of the time. So (laughs) at least you don't have to do anything different. Can you smell it or detect it while you're inside as well? Yeah, everything smells like a campfire. Well, I hope that all of you West Coasters uh, get clearer skies and fewer fires in the future. It's been very sad to see just from afar over here from East Coast safety to watch the whole West Coast go up in flames. That's not great. No, it's not the best, but here we are doing our baseball podcast as best we can. So Yes. So we have a guest whom we will bring on in just a little while. We got an email last week from listener Dan McMenamin who clued us into a fellow Effectively Wild listener and Facebook group member who works for the Mariners, and part of his duties, Dan told us in this strange season, is to retrieve dingers at Seattle Mariners home games. And that sounded intriguing. We have to talk to the dinger retriever at at Teed Mobile Park. So we will shortly be talking to that man, Sean Guiney, who is the Mariners' official souvenir manager. That is his title. That is the only person who has that title for a major league team. And we've got him. We uh, we only book the, the biggest, most exclusive unique <laughs> guests here. A couple quick things before we bring Sean on. I just happened to see after we recorded that there is now a Fangraphs post about this very topic that I was going to bring up in banter. So your staff is all over this. But Corbin Burns has, I think, my favorite stat line this season, at least in tandem with his 2019 stat line. And Tony Wolf just wrote about this, and I, I haven't read what he wrote yet. But I've been paying close attention to Corbin Burns this season because he was my pick for breakout player of the year when we did our ringer MLB staff predictions when the season started and they make me make predictions and I picked Corbin Burns and not that that was the most brilliant pick in the world because he was good in some respects last season he had a 8.82 ERA which uh, is not great generally but all of his peripherals were pretty promising and he struck out a lot of guys and he just had terrible historical historically awful luck in a a couple of respects so 
it was really just a, a strange season. He and Mitch Keller were both last season the only pitchers in Major League history to have batting average on balls in play allowed over 410 in a season of at least 45 innings pitched. So that was one way in which he had terrible luck, a 414 Babbitt. But he also had the highest home run per fly ball rate on record at Fangraphs. So almost 40%, like 39% of his fly balls went over the fence last year. So just everything went wrong. I mean, if it was in the ballpark, it fell for a hit. And if it didn't fall for a hit, it probably fell beyond the fence for the worst kind of hit. So everything was going against him. And yet he's got great stuff. He throws hard. He has some of the best spin rates in baseball. And I figured, well, if he just has regular luck, if he just pitches to like his ex-fit from last season, which was 3.37, then he'll make me look smart, except I think everyone's probably smart enough to figure these things out at this point. But now what has happened is that he's gone in the other direction entirely. So (laughs) (laughs) his peripherals haven't changed at all. I mean, they've barely budged at all. So he had 49 innings pits last year. He's up to 45 and a third this year. And almost everything is the same across the board. His strikeout rate went from 12.9 per nine to 12.7. His walk rate, 3.7 to 3.8. I mean, almost identical. His ground ball rate is like a percentage point apart. And so his XFIP is, again, almost identical to what it was last year. (laughs) And XFIP, for those who don't know, it's like FIP, except it goes one step further and sort of normalizes your home run per fly ball rate in addition to taking the the BABIP out of the equation, based on the fact that most pitchers tend to give up roughly the same percentage of their fly balls turning into home runs. And so if you're wildly in one direction or another, you expect that to swing back toward the mean. And he has swung back past the mean in the other direction. So he now has a 233 BABIP and a 2.9% home run per fly ball rate. So... (laughs) He has uh, only given up one home run on the season, and again, he's still given up like roughly the same rate of balls in the air, but they just have not gone over the fence, and so he has a 1.99 ERA right now. And so you could say, wow, what a brilliant breakout pick by Ben. He took the guy with the almost 9 ERA, and he foresaw that he would have a sub-2 ERA this year, but of course, he has basically been sort of the same guy and has had just completely polar opposite results. Yeah, it's he went from being one of the unluckiest pitchers like ever to yeah. one of the luckiest pitchers this season. There is yep. there have been some changes in his usage that Tony talks about, right? So he has largely abandoned his four seamer. He's he's throwing a two seamer more now, but it is it is sort of a curious He's a curious case. It's not entirely clear what is motivating and ch- and sort of driving the change apart from the, the usage and just the shift in luck. And I think that Tony enjoyed it as an exercise as much in like realizing what we don't know as what we're able to to suss mm-hmm. out. But yeah, he's, his peripherals are wildly identical. 
Yeah. <laughs> it is a it is a shocking amount of sameness uh, yep. year to year. And I think that, you know, there's a good conversation for us to have about XFIP and how much of your home run rate is skill versus not and how much suppression you can sort of count on year to year. But he is a very curious case. And, you know, I'm sure that if we were to ask him, he'd say, oh, I'll take this. Yeah. But it is it is very odd that it could swing so wildly season to season given the same set of underlying stats. Yeah. I am naturally disposed to being an anxious kind of person. And so on the one hand, if I were Burns, I would enjoy this very much, but I would also feel afraid every single day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which says probably more about me, Meg Rowley, than it says anything about Corbin Burns. But I yeah. would just be, I'd be looking over my shoulder. Uh, Tony used a delightful mob informant mole analogy in his in his piece. And I just sit there thinking of Corbin Burns being like, well, they're going to get me. So yeah. um, anyhow. Just like imagine what it's like to be Corbin Burns. Like I haven't <sighs> talked to him. I, I haven't gone looking to see if he has spoken about this, but I did write about Mitch Keller earlier this year. And, and played part of my conversation with him on the podcast yeah. and just about his experience as a rookie coming up and immediately having the highest Babbitt ever in that amount of playing time and how he sort of underwent a, a sabermetric awakening as part of that process because he found out about FIP and everything oddly not from the Pirates which was sort of an indictment of their previous regime I think that they didn't really try to reassure him according to Keller he just saw FIP on a, a scoreboard and sort of went searching himself and then figured out all of that so I don't know where Burns is on the sabermetric spectrum right but just like you know do you feel like you're bad one year and good the next year or do you just feel totally at the mercy of fate and the universe like we all are I mean luck plays an enormous role in all of our lives but I don't know that we're as aware of that on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, when I'm just uh, sitting here writing or, you know, you're editing or writing or we're podcasting or whatever, like it's not as apparent as it is if you're a baseball player and right. some days the balls are falling or going over the fence and some days they're not and some seasons they are or they aren't. So I just wonder because like it, it must have been demoralizing for him last year, even though he must have felt encouraged by the fact that he was missing bats and still had great stuff and now he must feel on top of the world, but it seems like he's kind of doing things the same pretty much, or at least the factors under his control have been pretty much the same. And I even I talked to someone with the Brewers when I was going to pick him as my breakout pick just to ask, like, am I missing something here? I right. mean, is there some reason why he had what seems to be terrible luck? Is it more than just luck? And that person was just like, nope, it's like the weirdest thing. We didn't understand it either. <laughs> It was frustrating. We just were kind of waiting for his luck to turn around, and boy, it has. Well, I imagine that Tony will take some comfort in hearing that the the Brewers were similarly perplexed by the <laughs> results that they were seeing last year, because yeah. I think that on the one hand, he was, you know, having a having a healthy appreciation for just the oddity that the sport can allow and the uncertainty, even as a smart analyst, that you can encounter when you're trying to understand something better. I don't know. I like that. It would be so boring if we could sort everything out. Yeah. So I I like that both because it lends some excitement and pizzazz to to analysis and also I think can highlight areas where we should 
look and see like, oh, there's there's something here we don't understand. This probably bears further scrutiny and maybe it'll reveal something that is relevant not only to this particular player, but to baseball more broadly. And that can be very uh, encouraging. But also sometimes it's Friday and you want to file and you want to be able to say, here's the one thing that Corbin Burns changed that made this all better. And when you can't do that, it's frustrating. So I will yeah. pass that along to Tony. I imagine he will feel encouraged. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just a good illustration of just how randomness really has a huge effect yeah. in baseball because we just kind of like persuade ourselves that we are the masters of our domains and, you know, whatever happens to us, we deserve it or we earn it or, or something. If we have success, it's because we worked really hard and maybe it is, but probably also some things went your way. And that's just very, very apparent when you're a baseball player and yeah. it's staring you right in the face with those stats. So I don't know, like if I were... Corbin Burns, if I were a major league player, of course I would be looking at my stats and I'd be looking at my defense independent stats or if I were a hitter, I'd be looking at my expected stats and so I'm sure I'd, I'd try to maintain perspective and you know if I'm hitting the ball hard and it's just going right at someone on the one hand, I think I would be maybe more equipped to weather that than someone who doesn't know that and just blames themselves for all of it right. but I doubt I would be able to maintain just sort of like a, a Vulcan impartiality about it all and just be like, well, it's I'm not doing anything wrong and my luck will even out. I'm sure I'd probably be as frustrated as, as anyone else. And, you know, I don't know if I'd be throwing my helmet or cursing because it's not really my temperament. But on the inside, at least, I would probably be just as frustrated. And I guess in a sense, maybe you would be even more frustrated in some right. ways because <laughs> You know, if everything's going against you and you're doing everything right, then you can't even beat yourself up about it. And if it's not even like your fielders or something, not that, that you should yell at them or anything, but at least in the privacy of your own home, you could say, well, my teammates are letting me down and, and make yourself feel better about it. But if it's not that, if it's just pure chance then how do you even rage against the universe it's not it's not anyone causing this pain or inflicting it on you it's just one of those things this is why you need a sad girl summer playlist ben that's <laughs> yeah, what this music so. is for <laughs> yeah and by the way i should also mention that part of corbin burns's non-hit allowing this year enabled a half no hitter i forget what we were even calling it but sam and i we did a, a stat blast some weeks ago about this concept of the the two team half no hitter so it's not one team holding the other team hitless for nine innings it's both teams holding their opponents hitless for four and a half innings <laughs> so it's the the half no hitter <laughs> I don't think this concept has caught on, <laughs> but there was one in in August, uh, August 18th, the, the Brewers and the Twins. That was a Corbin Burns game, and that was what inspired the listener email from Drew, who noticed that that had happened and wanted to know how common it was. And it just happened again on Thursday, Astros versus A's. They had one, so you, you have to get through the top of the fifth with neither team allowing a hit. And they did. And then Mark Hanna broke it up in uh, the first batter of the bottom of the fifth. And that was that. But they did it. And 
There were some listeners, of course, faithfully tracking this and letting me know via Twitter. (laughs) There were a couple of uh, Facebook group threads about this. And my favorite was uh, Dave Burke in the Facebook group. He posted double half game no hitter watch. Astros A's, Manaya and Rikidi, both nine up, nine down. Then there's a comment also by Dave in the same thread. Couple of walks from Rikidi there, but just three outs needed from Manaya to get to the halfway point. And then one more comment. There we have it. Not at all excited to have seen that. <laughs> that, that was the whole thread. No one else responded or really reacted in any way. <laughs> but, but I really appreciate that uh, a couple people were aware enough of this to tell me it was happening. And as listener Adam Ott told us when he looked this up for the step last, it's rare. It's about half as common as the actual no-hitter that everyone cares about. So there have been at least two this season, which is somewhat unusual. I, I think there have been maybe a 108 since 1918, something like this, unless there was one that no one told me about, which is entirely possible. So people are, are watching. Just a couple of Effectively Wild listeners are keeping an eye out for the half-game no-hitter. I appreciate that. I um, <laughs> I noticed that thread also, and mm-hmm. the the conclusion of it made me laugh very hard because yeah. as it was unfolding, I was like, I can't care about this. <laughs> no. I can't. Like, I care about a lot of very silly stuff, and so I don't say that like other people caring about this is is bad or wrong or useless. You should, if you can find anything at all that brings you some amount of joy right now, I think that you should lean into it very hard. I can't care about this. Yeah. But other people are certainly allowed to, but it made me laugh quite, quite hard. Because <laughs> yeah. I just, the whole time I was like, um, should I care about it? You know, you always have that moment when people delight in things and you can't delight in them. It doesn't. It doesn't inspire that feeling of of warmth and excitement that you can tell other people share. And when yeah. I have that disconnect, I always wonder if I am missing something obvious and important. <laughs> and then I, I was like, no, I'm not. And then. And then I felt affirmed that I was indeed not not missing <laughs> yeah. anything. Yeah. Um, so I didn't get any joy from the combined no hitting what are we calling them (laughs) whatever this is i was like half game no hitter half game no hitter that did not inspire any joy or delight in me but the thread (laughs) about it inspired a great amount of joy so i'm just saying you find uh you find your delights in odd places sometimes yeah i want to care about it because it's like the the hipster no hitter that's kind of what i said when i talked about it with sam it's like the no hitter no one notices and in a way it's even more impressive than the no hitter everyone else cares about but i think i also said that in practice it would probably be a letdown because the game just goes on and no one notices or marks the occasion in any way there's no celebration There's no anyone being mobbed on the mound. It's just the game goes on and then someone gives up a hit and that's that. So it's totally anticlimactic, but uh, I'm glad that someone tipped me off that this was happening. Like, I am very excited for there to be spooky tinsel light up things at Target for Halloween. (laughs) Uh And I don't expect other people to be as excited about that as I am. 
but I am very excited. So sometimes you are excited about stuff, but this is not one of the stuffs. This is <laughs> yeah. not among the stuff. Yeah. But well, this is uh, maybe a more fun fact. I just saw a tweet from Andrew Simon, who is quote tweeting a tweet by Rays beat writer Juan Tribio that there are nine left handed hitters in the Rays lineup tonight. Just and sent this to other Ben. Yeah, this is uh, interesting, right? Yeah, Yeah. and uh, according to Andrew Simon, who just used baseball reference to look this up, there has never been a time in MLB history, at least going back to 1901, that a team has started nine left-handed batters in the same game. And Andrew says there have been more than 100 starting lineups with nine batters who were lefty or switch, which would be nine batters coming up lefty if there's a right-handed pitcher, but that is not quite the same, so it's... Austin Meadows, Joey Wendell, Brandon Lau, G-Man Choi, Kevin Kiermeyer, Yoshi Tsutsugo, Nate Lowe, Brett Phillips, and Michael Perez. Nine lefties, huh? Yeah, wild. That's interesting. I guess I, in anticipation likely of this, this switch thing, maybe, uh, was surprised that this was the first time, just because there have been so many games, Ben. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so a, a lineup thing seemed particularly vulnerable to having been done before, almost mm-hmm. certainly. And yet, and yet, this yeah. is the this is the first time. Which of course made me wonder who are the Rays facing? Mm-hmm. They are facing Andrew Triggs. And yeah. then I thought to myself, they're facing a Boston pitcher. Would it matter who it was? And that wasn't a generous thought, but I will admit to it being a thought that I had, Ben. That was a thought I had in my brain. Yeah. Right-handed pitcher, so they loaded up on lefties for this game. And Andrew Triggs does have reverse splits for his career, and lefties have actually done worse against him. But evidently the Rays believe that that is not real, and uh, it probably isn't because he has pitched only about 170 innings in his career. So you would not make much of that. And I guess the Rays just have a lot of lefties on hand, and you have expanded rosters. I guess that makes it easier, probably, to load up a, a lineup with all lefties but you still need a pretty lefty heavy roster to do that and not sacrifice some performance there so that's kind of cool that is a fun fact that is a first i mean think of how many lineups and games there have been and that has never happened it's sort of surprising i guess ben we have to grapple with this boston pitching situation for a hot second i mean i know that we have done it before collectively As a society, as people mm-hmm. who like think about what goes wrong in the world and why. But Ben. Yeah. Ben, you looked at this lately? Not lately. I have averted my eyes after how it started. How does it look now? It looks Ben, it looks pretty bad. I'm gonna yeah. I'm here to tell you that it looks pretty bad. So when you look at um their team pitching stats as a whole, so this is both starters and relievers, they are sporting Oh, gravy. A 610 ERA, a 547 FIP. They have combined been worth negative 1.5 wins. Hmm. The next worst team, at least by our estimation at Fangraphs, is the Tigers, who have been worth 0.4 wins. 
So that's quite a that's quite a delta to be bridged. And then if you yeah. start to look at it in terms of starters versus relievers, so they have the worst rotation in baseball, worth almost a whole negative win on their own. Negative win. We need a better way of talking about that because that doesn't make any sense at all. They do not have the the worst bullpen in baseball that honor belongs to the Mariners who have been worse. <laughs> this can't be true. Can they have really been worth almost a, a negative 1.5 wins on their own? Oh, Mariners relievers. I believe what? it. Ironic that the Padres traded for like half of them. <laughs> well, I think that they probably got all the good ones. Yes, I think so. Perhaps. Goodness. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, Boston fans, you know, it's as bad as you think. I don't know if that's any comfort, <laughs> but it hasn't been great. Although, you know, I'm going to switch gears back to the Mariners. Ben, you know who's in the Mariners' bullpen now? Oh, yes, I do know. Jimmy Yacobonis. Yes. He's already thrown an inning. Major minor league free agent draft implications. I have not tracked the current state of the minor league free agent draft. I was sassy toward you on Twitter, and then someone said, isn't Sam smoking both of you, which might be true? (laughs) Yeah, I haven't looked either because Sam taunted me for how poorly I was doing a while ago. And so since then, I have not dared to even look. (laughs) But... But yes, uh, I am. I'm sorry about that. But we will, of course, tally up the standings when the season ends, and we'll see. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> I remember Jeff tracking a few years ago when the Reds were bad at pitching. He was tracking whether the Reds could have a sub replacement pitching staff over a full season, and I think he was sort of excited that they actually pulled it off. Although, yeah. I think subsequently, since framing got factored into war i'm not sure that they are sub replacement for that season their pitchers anymore but the red sox are doing it so i don't know whether they would do it over 162 games but they're they're really making a run at it i can't see that there are a lot of pitchers who would be coming back say if they continued to play who would really improve that equation so yeah it has not been a a fun team to watch and I should also mention, because some people might be wondering, that the eight left-handed hitter lineup has been done 26 times. So Uh, we have come very close before, but uh, it has not happened until now. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but I would imagine that that makes it slightly less rare. But still, even that, not a a ton. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not a ton even for uh, just for eight. So Ben, do you have a moment to engage with our uh, postseason seeds? Ever yeah, so sure. briefly. Yeah, because the, the regular season, don't know if you've noticed, but it's almost over. <laughs> yeah, I have noticed. You know why, Ben? Because we do not yet have a postseason schedule. And I realize that it is very complicated and they are trying to put everyone in a bubble, seemingly. But these things take planning, Ben. Mm-hmm. And I don't care for how little planning I've been allowed <laughs> to do this year, just in general, but even specifically related to my job. But among the teams currently in the mix... Some of these, not surprising, but when I get to one that is surprising, you let me know. That means we're not going to be talking about the American League fields because that is pretty (laughs) unsurprising. Although I will say the Yankees as the current eight seed at 22 and 21, although I believe they are ahead in the game they are playing against Baltimore as we are recording. So that record is going to shift. I mean, it would shift even if they were not ahead, but will shift to their advantage theoretically. But they are the eight seed, which is wild based on our expectations coming into this year and then 
the team in ninth place is those same Orioles and then yep. the Tigers and then the Mariners and their terrible bullpen. So that's <laughs> wild. If yeah. the Mariners unseat the Astros in the West, which I will say I do not believe will happen, but would be hilarious. It would be <laughs> hilarious. It would. Looking down at, at the, the playoff odds, gaps are still huge, yeah. which is uh, kind of counterintuitive if you were just looking at the standings because right. there's no daylight really between the Yankees and the Orioles at all, hardly. And yet you look at the playoff odds and it's like, even though the Yankees have had this incredibly rough stretch and have been missing a lot of players and were under 500 there briefly, their playoff odds are still over 90% before this game is even over. And meanwhile, the Orioles are still in single digits. So even though we just have like a couple weeks left in the season and their records are are very close together, I guess the, the projections still say and the strength of schedule and whatever else that the Orioles cannot do this. But it, it would be quite fun if they did. It would be fun. But you know where the real fun is to be had, Ben, is in the National League. Mm. Are you ready for the current seeding in the National League? I am. We have the Dodgers in in the first seed spot, which is unsurprising because they are behemoths, mm-hmm. titans, here to play Mookie Betts at second base as if it is nothing. <laughs> yep. And, uh, and so they're doing their business. You have the Braves with their very bad rotation. You have the Cubs with their questionable bullpen. You have the Padres, which... Are we safe in saying that the Padres are the most fun team in baseball right now? It's them or the White Sox for me personally. Yeah, I think we can say that the Padres have been the most fun this season. Yeah, and then you have the Phillies with their terrible bullpen. You have the Cardinals who have still somehow only have a record of 19 and 18 because they still have games to make up. And then the Marlins and the Giants. Yep. Ben, it's the (laughs) Marlins and the Giants. It is. I don't know how this happened exactly, but it has been pretty fun to have the Marlins be trade deadline buyers and to have both these teams be in the mix, even though the Marlins took one of the the worst losses we've seen in, in some time this past week. They have been pretty good this year yeah and yeah i mean they have realistic chances that the giants last time i looked earlier this week were favorites to be a playoff team yeah which uh, is still the case i guess yeah I, th- I believe so i think the marlins that game that they lost to atlanta is a great um is a great argument for us all being sort of picky and discerning about when we deploy particular words i think that we overuse shellacking mm. and this proves that you should really save it. You really got to save shellacking for a game yeah. like that because they took yeah. it was a shellacking. But it's not, yes. you know, it's five runs. That's not a shellacking. This was a shellacking. I think yes. we overuse it. I think that the you know the the Marlins and the Giants quite surprising that the Phillies have managed to sort of hold on. Also surprising given how bad that bullpen is. I just feel so bad for the Reds. Yeah. I know, and yet they're pitching, because I was just looking at their pitching war this season, because I was recounting how they had a sub-replacement pitching staff not so long ago, and now they have an excellent pitching staff, at least according to Fangraph's war. Their uh, Fangraph's war trails only Cleveland and Minnesota and San Diego, or they're tied with San Diego so far in war from their pitching staff, and yet 
yeah, it has not gone the way that they wanted. And obviously their position players are toward the bottom end of that scale, which is why they are where they are. Yeah. It's just you want teams that actively try to get better to succeed because you want that to to be behavior that is emulated and sort of incentivized. And they kept trying to get better at the deadline. And it's not like there's no way for them to make the postseason, but it does not look great. It doesn't Mm -hmm. look great. So that's a bummer. But that is our current playoff situation. It is wild still to see 16 teams featured here. I will get it wrong forever. Have you started getting used to there only being seven innings in doubleheaders yet? Uh, I guess so. I, I haven't been surprised a lot lately by thinking that the game was going to go on longer and then it didn't, but uh, it it did take some adjusting, definitely. I'm still adjusting to that one. I have the habit. I imagine this is not so dissimilar from, from what you do, but, you know, if I'm flipping through different games, I'll see what is close and late and sort of prioritize watching that unless there's a particular matchup or what have you a starter who's going who I'm keen to see and I have come close to almost missing the last inning of a doubleheader several times because I'm like oh it's only in the seventh (laughs) and I'm like wait a minute right that's yeah. important now. So Yeah, if you're a fan and you're watching both games, then I think it's in your mind. But if you're just flipping from one game to another, then yeah, it might not be clearly marked enough or maybe we just haven't uh, conditioned ourselves well enough to adjust to that. I mean, you know, you go a whole lifetime thinking that seventh inning means one thing and then it means something else entirely. So yeah, I could see why that would take a little while. Very confusing seventh inning is when you're supposed to stretch yeah here's another thing that must be particularly disappointing about rooting for the reds right now is that their underlying numbers have been pretty good and as i recall this has been the case for them now two years in a row because i think last year they underperformed their underlying stats their pythagorean record and base runs record etc and this year, according to Fangraphs, they do have a 19 and 25 record. That's a 432 winning percentage. They should have a 23 and 21 record. That's 513. So basically, they've played like a playoff team. They have the the deserved record of a playoff team, and yet not at all the actual record, the record that counts. And that's two years in a row now. And I guess that could mean something, but it probably still doesn't mean anything. It's just, you know, the the Corbin Burns thing that we were talking about earlier. It's just uh, bad timing, bad sequencing, bad luck, whatever. So that's even more frustrating if you go for it and you play like a playoff team, but you still aren't one. I can just say with a tremendous amount of authority, the only thing that feels good uh, at the end of the year is whether or not you've made the playoffs. That's not true. I enjoy a lot about baseball that isn't the postseason, but there comes a point where you're like, no, I just would like to see my favorite team playing in October. And mm-hmm. the fact that they were good but didn't that quite make time it. came for you. <laughs> yeah. It was uh, 12 years ago, maybe, roughly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so you can talk yourself into accepting the fate of your favorite team in any number of ways. And I think there's a lot about baseball that is worth enjoying and celebrating and paying attention to that is not playing in the postseason. But sometimes, Ben, you just want to watch your dumb old team play in October. You just Mm want to be able to do it. 
and you yeah. can't and then your entire engagement with the sport and that team changes and you realize that by the time they do it you will have been working in baseball media for a while and it will not feel the same and then you have grief <laughs> about that but you're like yeah it'll be fine because then when they lose it won't hurt as badly and and then you realize you really should go back to therapy so it's just the whole thing ben <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. What has been that <laughs> process for you of uh, of losing that feeling of intense fandom? Because I know that people are curious about that. I, I think I see people discuss it in the Facebook group sometimes. Why aren't Ben and Sam and Meg fans more? Which I, I understand because it's uh, an alien thing. I think when you've been a fan your whole life to think of losing that fandom and yet still caring about baseball very much and in some ways even more than ever, but not really looking at it through that lens of one team. And I get the sense that for you it, it wasn't like an intentional losing that like thinking i have to be impartial and fair and so i i must uh at least maintain a facade of being a a neutral party and then maybe that becomes ingrained it it just happened right i mean for me it just sort of happened too yeah i think that well you know fandom is not rational so it doesn't necessarily respond to the signal that is whether a team is winning or losing a lot. So what I'm about to say like comes with a, an asterisk, but it's easy to be, well, I don't know, but easy being the right word. I think that the maintaining some kind of balance between fandom when the team you like best is the Mariners and impartiality is easy when the team is as bad as the Mariners have sometimes been because you can just be like, this is a bad baseball team and there's stuff to like. And, you know, there are very good players, a strange concentration of like very consequential players to the sport on this bad baseball team that has never been to the world series. (laughs) But, you know, I think that your scope broadens, you have to pay attention to more things. I think the familiarity that comes with, a team being part of your daily routine is important to sort of sustaining fandom. I mean, the stuff you root for changes when you're someone who works in the industry in some capacity. I think that, you know, I find myself rooting for teams of that, like friends of mine work for, because I'm like, I want, you know, like I want uh, good things for the Padres because they're super fun. And also because like Dave's my friend and I want good things for Dave and I want the Rays to do well because of Jeff and, I want the Phillies and that garbage bullpen to improve so that like Corinne has a nice day, you know, like, mm-hmm. so that kind of changes some of your rooting interests in the way that you engage with it. And I think that, you know, I'd rather, I guess I'd rather the Mariners win than not, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have the ability to kind of wreck my mood in the way that it did in my moments of most intense fandom. So mm-hmm. you put that stuff in other places, you know, I don't try to, critically engage with football to quite the same degree that I do with baseball because I just get to be a fan and like I know how the analytics work in football and I get mad when the Seahawks run when they should pass with Russell Wilson who's very good at that but I also like can just be mad on behalf of the guys I like best and it doesn't have to be rational and that's fine so I I think it's like Jeff with hockey right so it's kind of gone to a different place Mm -hmm. i don't know like it'll be really interesting to see you know i joke about it a lot but like this mariners team will go to the playoffs again 
sometime. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll probably still be around, hopefully. And so I don't know how I'll feel when that happens. It'll be really interesting to see. It might stir something in me again. You know, I think that if you ask Jeff, like when the Mariners looked like they were kind of trouble at the end of the season, the last couple of years, like he was invested in a way he was surprised by. And I'm sure that's changed now that he can say we when talking about the Rays in a way that no one can criticize, but you know, stuff moves around and it'd, it'd be interesting. So I think that they should do it so that we can <laughs> conduct an experiment on my mood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. With me, it was just, it just sort of slipped away without my trying really. Yeah. I had been a kind of hardcore fan growing up with the the dynasty Yankees teams and a few subway stops away from Yankee Stadium and then I did work for the Yankees for a little while in college after college and I think that was part of it when you're working for a team obviously you still root for that team to do well and to win but not in quite the same way, or at least I think in baseball operations, there was almost a, a stigma about like being a super fan, right? Because right. it was like, you know, you want to keep it professional, right? You don't want to be, it's almost like the no cheering in the press box sort right. of thing. I mean, you know, at least when you're an intern, I mean, I guess if you're the GM or something, you you still, you can root as much as you want, but you didn't want to give anyone the impression that like you only wanted to be there, work there because you were a big fan and right. you thought it was cool and you wanted to hang out with the players or something. So I think you sort of lost it a little there. And, and also just like, it's a job, like you go to it and you want the team to do well, of course, but it's still a job and whatever that aura of like magic and, and childhood emotion just sort of slips away I think a little bit when it's a place where you're getting paid by the hour and you clock in and clock out and all of that it just takes a little bit of the mystique maybe out of it as interesting as it can be to be involved on that side of things and then writing and podcasting about baseball when it's sort of your job to pay attention to all the teams and all the players in the league then you know your attention is diverted necessarily and you're not paying attention to this one team every single day you're looking at the league as a whole and so your view of the sport is maybe a little less parochial or, or partisan and you realize that hey there's a lot of interesting stories here and this team is really fun and this player is really fun and he's not on the team I grew up rooting for but I'm still watching him a lot and maybe I'm writing about him or podcasting about him and I'm thinking about all these other teams all the time right. and suddenly it's like well this one team is not so exceptional to me anymore I suppose that it's not above the others to the same degree that it used to be which is sort of sad like it's, it's definitely a loss on some level but I think there are trade-offs there and it's nice to be aware of, of everything that's going on not that you can't be aware and also rooting for a team but it's, uh, it's nice to lose that pressure and that feeling of living and dying with every pitch in some senses because I'm not going to like have my night ruined because right. my team lost or something. But also you miss that sometimes because if you have your nights ruined when your team loses, then you also have your nights made when your team wins. Not that hopefully that is swinging your entire <laughs> mindset and worldview, whether your sports team wins, but you know it can give you a boost and it's exciting and fun. 
And that was one of the things I liked so much about the Stompers summer is that Sam and I were really rooting hard and living and dying with every pitch again, which was something that we had sort of stopped doing with our childhood teams by that point. I think that it opens, it's fine to feel that as a sense of loss. I think what I found myself appreciating about it is that it does, like you said, because you have a broader perspective on like what good really means. And I don't say that as if fans can't objectively evaluate not only their own team, but the league and sort of look around and say, oh, well, like, here's what, you know, an all-star actually looks like, not just the all-star on our team that automatically gets an all-star, right? Um, So I don't mean mean to say that, but I, I do think it sort of opens you up to a feeling of appreciation for other performances. So like my engagement with Mike Trout as a player has changed over the years in a way that I really appreciate because now even when Mike Trout does something really amazing against the Mariners, I'm like, God, that Mike Trout. <laughs> and yeah. I'm not like, God, that Mike Trout, you know, and right. and I don't begrudge Mariners fans who feel that way about him to have that feeling like they're... There are really good, interesting, fun football players who play in the NFC West who I cannot stand because mm-hmm. they make my life difficult on Sundays during the football season. And that that feeling doesn't exist for me with the Mariners anymore. And so you can look around the league and be like, wow, that guy's amazing. I can be a fan of the kind of game he's playing in a way that I can't when I'm being a fan of this team. And it also lets you appreciate the really exceptional performances on the team you grew up rooting for in a different kind of way. So like, I'm so jazzed for Kyle Lewis. Like, Mm -hmm. this is the most excited I've been about a Mariners rookie in a long time. This is so cool. Like, he's a legitimate rookie of the year candidate. That's amazing. And I know a lot about like, struggle he went through with his injuries and i've heard about what kind of a person he is from people in the org and he is genuinely good right he is standout in a way that Mm -hmm. is not about me being a mariners fan it's about me being a fan of good baseball and that feels cool too it's just a different kind of thing so uh we never get to feel 100 percent of the feelings we want all the time we're always making a (laughs) (laughs) trade-off and so it's good to like remember the ones that are that are cool that you get to access uh, even when you've lost something if you're able to. So, yeah. Yeah, and there are writers and media people who pull it off. They just manage to keep that fandom somehow while still covering a a whole league or another team really well and and insightfully and professionally, you know, whether it's, uh, I don't know, Will Leach with the Cardinals. I mean, he writes about all baseball teams and players, but he still seems to care about the Cardinals as much as ever. And I sort of envy that. And I I think you can pull that off. I, I think a lot of fans can be biased toward their team, but I think it's totally possible to be unbiased and still root really hard for a team or just to kind of look at things in a clear-eyed way and and want one thing to happen, but understand that it may not or why it didn't or whatever. So it can be done. I just think it's not common probably for people to totally keep that sense and do this for a living. Yep. By the way, speaking of shellacking and the Phillies' bullpen, here's a a stat I just saw from Corey Seidman. The four relievers the Phillies traded for have faced 115 batters. The slash line of the hitters in those 115 plate appearances, 364, 452, 
737. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and those were the reinforcements. That was the cavalry. <laughs> that was yes. like, hey, we we need to put this fire in our bullpen out. Let's trade for these four guys. And then <laughs> they've hit like, I don't know, almost Barry Bonds level. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's it's not great. Not great. All right. Well, I'm glad you said something nice about the Mariners just then because I felt bad about how we were talking about the the Mariners being an unsuccessful baseball team before we brought on a guest who works for the Mariners and was nice enough to share his time with us. But uh, we're trying to be honest about things. And I wanted to get you to say where in the ballpark Cardboard Meg is right now. You told me, but just for anyone who's watching at home and uh, might want to keep an eye out or is wondering where your, your seat fleet person is, where are you in the park roughly? Yes, the team, I think probably in response to how overwhelming the response to the seat fleet has been, has uh, put out a very comprehensive section by section map um, that shows you kind of where you are. And I, I, me, Meg, I'm in section 122, Mm -hmm. which is if you are unfamiliar with the section numbers in T-Mobile, it is uh, behind the home dugout. Um, If you were to go down the first baseline to the end of the dugout rail, I am sort of above that and I am on the aisle, and I am five rows up. And I have not yet found myself on the broadcast. I think that it is um, it is just out of frame if you're looking, you know, when they do the broadcast angle over a left-handed hitter, I can see the guy who's at the other end of my row often. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have not yet seen myself on the broadcast, but it's nice to know I'm there, and it looks like it turned out well. There's some There's some good dogs Hanging out in that section, can see some good pups. So uh, I, I'm I'm quite pleased, but it's a it's a pretty full park. I've been impressed by how many teams have very very full ballparks, and also continue to be amused by how widely the proportions of anyone's cutouts vary, and how weird mm-hmm. that looks if you're examining it up close. But yeah. All right. I meant to ask, by the way, do you feel in a mid-September frame of mind no. baseball-wise? <laughs> Have you been able to make that adjustment at all? Yeah, because I don't really either because I, I know that the season is ending soon, that the regular season is winding down. And yet, partially, obviously, because it, it hasn't been going very long. But even beyond that, I don't know. I just don't feel like the, the late season suspense. And maybe that's because of the giant playoff field and the fact that not a lot of playoff spots are actually at stake and yes maybe they're division races and all that but I'm just not sure how much that even matters this season whether home field advantage is even real and so that feels less consequential and as we were talking about there are a lot of teams that whether they've been good or not just sort of have their spots sewn up and right now you only have two teams really the Marlins and the Brewers are the only ones that are sort of in the 50-50 range and then you've got the Mets and and the Giants are sort of between 30 and, and 70 in terms of playoff odds and everyone else is either sort of out of it or in it and it would be hard to to change that one way or another it's not impossible that it could but because of that I guess it just doesn't really feel like a 
pennant race to me and I don't know if it will maybe in the last week of the season or not but not getting that sense I just want to be able to plan our coverage <laughs> let us yeah. let me plan a thing let me plan something baseball it takes Nothing a lot of can be planned takes a lot of work to plan the thing yeah. you know get everyone ready to go so they can anticipate the nights where they're not going to sleep a lot you know <laughs> gotta let us do some work here mlb i'm sure that our little website being able to plan recaps is high on their <laughs> list of priorities compared to the yeah. logistical challenge of orchestrating a playoff bubble so right. get it together guys <laughs> all right well we will take a quick break and we'll be back with the mariners souvenir manager sean guiney Are back and as promised now we are joined by Sean Guiney the official Seattle Mariners souvenir manager who is joining us right now from a somewhat smoke-filled T-Mobile park hello Sean how's it going good how are you guys thanks for having me we are doing all right so thanks for coming on and I had to ask you this question myself so I suppose I will ask it to you again in a public forum so that our listeners can hear the answer what does a souvenir manager do, both in these times and pandemic days and in more normal times? So in normal times, souvenir manager is just another name for the ballpark retail manager. I manage all of our retail locations within the ballpark. That's about 17 different kiosks and stores on a busy game day. So my job is to make sure we have enough staff, look at attendance and see which sites it makes sense to have open on any given game and just make sure, you know, they have the right inventory, the right products to maximize our sales. And what does it mean now? Because obviously I've been to T-Mobile many, many times and yeah. there, aren't, there aren't fans there to buy anything from the kiosk. Not. So yes, what are you getting up to these days? <laughs> so these days, my job on a game day is quite different. I'm assisting the authenticators. There's an authentication team that works each game and um, they are too busy to be running around the ballpark tracking down home run balls. So it's my job when someone hits a home run to track down that ball and bring it to them so that they can authenticate it. Yeah, and so you told me that even in a, a normal season, you coordinate with authenticators to get yes. game-used products in the middle of the games, and then you sell them, the team sells them, so that would be balls exactly. or, or broken bats. So how do you do that? What gets saved, I guess, just in the regular course of business, and how do you assist in that process? Sure. So it's completely, we're, you know, up to the mercy of how the game flows, what balls go into the stands or, you know, players will often toss them to fans. So anything on a given game day in normal circumstances, we, you know, will get a few dozen balls a game on average, but it can really vary. And broken bats, it's just whenever someone on the Mariners breaks a bat, when the opposing team breaks a bat, that stays with them um, and they ship it home to their stadium and 
hmm. will sell it through their team. So really what we're getting is any game used baseballs that haven't left the field of play. You know, if there's a pitch in the dirt, that ball will get tossed aside to the ball boy and the ball boy will hand it to the authenticator. Anytime the ball is tossed out of play by either the umpire or the pitcher or the catcher, those are the balls that we're getting. So usually it is a lot of pitches in the dirt, ground outs, fly outs, and then base hits, doubles and triples. In a normal season, we would never get an authenticated home run ball because that ball leaves the field of play into an area where, you know, there's hundreds of people and the authenticators cannot say for sure that that ball, if should it go re-enter the field of play, was the exact ball that was hit. So mm, right. that's the thing that's unique about this year is we're able to actually authenticate home run balls for the first time because me and the authenticator can stand out there and make yeah. sure that there's no other balls. Um, Cut an established chain of custody. Exactly. Yep. I want to get to the logistics of collecting all of those home run balls in a moment. But before I do, yeah. I'm curious, you know, I think that we're all accustomed to if a guy comes up for his first major league game, you know, they'll take the ball that is his first hit out of play right. so that he can yep. keep it and whatnot. But have there ever been any balls or broken bats or any other paraphernalia that you would think, oh, we're going to be able to, you know, sell this as a, a nice souvenir for a fan here that a player has said, no, no, I actually want mm -hmm. that thing. <laughs> It's funny, that actually happened to me before I worked for the Mariners. I had previously worked for the Giants from 2012 to 2014, and there was a game in the World Series. I'm sure some people remember where Hunter Pence hit a big base hit that shattered his bat, and it hit the bat multiple times. That bat was authenticated and quickly brought up to the Giants game used store where someone was really looking to buy it, purchased it right away. And then after the fact, the Hall of Fame contacted the Giants and said they wanted that. So someone had to track down that fan and get it back from him. <laughs> that is my only experience with that. The only other time it's gotten close is, you know, we'll be selling things starting in the fifth inning. If someone were to throw a no hitter or a perfect game, we hold all those things. So Anytime it becomes, you know, fifth inning and we're ready to sell baseballs, uh, broken bats, we also sell the game used bases. If someone has a no hitter or a perfect game going, we just hold those things until that is over just to avoid those situations. So it's happened a few times in the years I've been here that we've gotten close and we've had to hold things until the ninth inning to sell. Luckily, we have not ever preemptively sold something that we had to track down and get back because either the team or Hall of Fame wanted it. And what if it's an occasion like, say, Felix's last game for the Mariners or Ichiro's last game? Do you go into overdrive and save extra stuff? Definitely, yep. Usually at the start of a homestand, we will let the authenticators, we'll give them a heads up on what we're looking for, if there's any you know, special games coming up where we're going to want to collect as much as possible or we're going to pull extra sets of bases and yeah those things you know a good chunk of that we'll be able to sell but it's also saved for you know the team will want to keep some um, we'll save some to give to the player 
if it's a big, you know, a momentous game for him. That usually gets set aside before it ever gets to me. And what do the authenticators do exactly to authenticate? I mean, there's an authenticator in every park, and what yep. do they slap a, a sticker, shiny sticker on something to say this is authentic? Uh, do they record it in some way? Do they have to do anything else to make it official? Yeah, so there's a recording system called TrackVIA that um, everything gets tracked through, and the authenticators are pitch tracking the whole game so that they're on top of exactly what plays each ball is associated with. So those things get recorded in that system so that um, that goes to the MLB authentication website where then after they put the hologram on it, the fan can go on the internet at home, go to the MLB authentication website and look up exactly which plays that ball or bat or base was affiliated with. I see. And so do you have an estimate of, say, the percentage of balls used in a typical game that do get saved and authenticated and made available in some way? During a normal season, I would say it is probably 50 to 60 percent of the balls that make it to me so that we can sell them. I would say the majority of the balls that don't make it to me are just balls that, you know, a foul ball into the stands or in the inning ending, you know, ground out that the first baseman will just toss to a fan. Okay, so let's transition to 2020, and I'm going to hit you with a couple of of logistical questions. So I know you had indicated to us offline that you, in addition to tracking down home run balls, are also clearing the stands of baseballs after batting practice, is my understanding of that aggregate. Yes. So how long does that take? (laughs) Okay, so that's like my biggest job right now is, you know, got to get all warmed up, stretched, because it's quite a task, especially with all the cardboard cutouts in the stands right now. Um, yeah. Those have made it a challenge. It's literally only a challenge Meg, for cardboard me. Cardboard Meg is getting yeah. in Sean's way. I'm so sorry, yeah. Sean. <laughs> That's okay. And, you know, they can be distracting because some of them are pretty entertaining. Um, so you just got to stay focused. And um, the what's happening is, so like in right field where, you know, it's row after row of cardboard cutouts. Someone will hit a home run in batting practice. Normally it bounces around, rolls down some rows, and it's just on the cement for me to pick up. But with more cutouts, their cutouts seem to be absorbing the blows really well. So if it hits a cutout, it'll just be sitting in their lap. That's so funny. (laughs) Or the other thing that's happening, which is harder to find, is if it does bounce, they're hitting the back of the head, so the cutouts, and then lodging behind the cutouts, which are, those ones are hard to find and you just have to really take your time going through each row where there are cutouts so that you don't miss any. And has your strategy for positioning yourself in the outfield changed at all as time has gone on either for batting practice or for regular games? Are you studying sort of the spray charts of incoming hitters so that you have a general sense of where their home runs are going to go? Or are you just sort of starting in center field and hoping for an equal distribution? That's a great question because it has changed. Originally, we were sectioned kind of right in the middle of the foul pole and where the batter's eye starts. So 
the, all the right field bleachers, we just were positioned right in the middle of there. That's because the majority of balls we get are going to go in that area because we are not allowed to authenticate any balls that go into the bullpens, unfortunately. And that's because, one, I'm a Tier 3 employee, so I can't go down there anyways. And two, because there are balls scattered throughout there the entire time, so there would be no way to know for sure which ball was which. So the right field stands is our moneymaker. That's where we're getting the majority of balls. But I've found that there's just better angles at T-Mobile Park where your vantage point is better. So I sit closer to center field. That way I can sort of, when a home run goes to right field, I can see better what row it lands in. And then I'm also closer to center field or Edgar's Cantina is the other place we can get balls. I'm closer to there if I need to go over to left field. And you, as you mentioned, have had up close and personal interaction with the the seat fleet, the fans. And I'm curious, how well are they all holding up? Because I imagine, you know, we've watched Mariners games and I've seen a couple of them get dinged uh, by a home run ball. Are are they they soldiering on or any of them bound for the injured list? Have there... Has there been a need to replace any of them? No, I I wouldn't know if they've been replaced, but they are holding up miraculously well from what I can tell. I've watched balls, you know, line drive home runs that have to be over 110 miles per hour, uh, drill them right in the face. And there's they have a little give to them because they're secured on the arms of the seats, but it's not really, it's not zip tied to the seat. So if it hits it in the face, the bottom just kind of shifts out a little bit. So yeah, they're taking the beating quite well. I'm very impressed. And have any home run balls eluded you thus far? Have you been unable to find them or have they been inaccessible for some reason? Almost, yes. Some have been inaccessible just because they've landed in the bullpen, unfortunately. But the closest thing I got to a ball eluding me was this last weekend um, when we were playing the Rangers. Joey Gallo hit a ball into the third deck um, that I could not tell it was the third deck from my vantage point. So I quickly ran up to the Hit It Here Cafe and couldn't find it. And then I actually got a text from someone else, another Mariner employee who was working the game, who told me it was in the third deck. So I got up there in time to snag it. And yeah, that one was a very impressive home run. It wasn't even in the first row of the third deck. It was, I believe it was in the fourth row that we found the ball in. So quite a poke. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you have anyone else sort of with a a different vantage who's able to serve as a spotter for you to tell you, oh, you got to go up to section whatever, or if you're really just relying on your own visual assessment of the home run's trajectory to kind of track down where it falls. No, yeah, at this point, people sort of have an idea of what we're doing out there. So I've had a couple employees, ballpark ops employees, text me when they see a home run ball that, you know, they can help out with. Some of those people are tier two. So for instance, if a ball goes into the pen area, not the bullpen, the pen area, which is a center field viewing area for fans typically, we can authenticate the ball if it goes in there because the authenticator can keep an eye on it. But I can't personally go down there because it's within the area of tier one players. So I have to have, I'll text my tier two 
person might hook up who will go get that for us, which uh, we really appreciate because that seems to be Kyle Lewis's favorite spot to hit them this year. What is the atmosphere, the environment like at the park? I mean, you're used to working on game days and having a, a full crowd with fans being loud, and now it, it must feel like you have almost a, a private performance for you. So what is it like? I, I'm sure you've gotten used to it over time, but it must have been quite jarring at first, and I just haven't been in a ballpark in a while, so I want to live vicariously through your experience. For sure. It's, it's very surreal. It took some getting used to at first, mostly just because the game is so loud. Like the popping of the catcher's glove, the pitchers mm. throw hard, it turns out, and that's really loud. And when someone, you know, barrels a ball, it, uh, if you're not paying attention, it will wake you up. And yeah, I, I love that, you know, the video team who does an awesome job, they're playing videos that feels like it's just for me in between innings. Uh, we still have the seventh inning stretch, which... I absolutely stand up and sing along too. That's fun. But yeah, it's very, very surreal being there with no one cheering and just, you know, hearing some speakers uh, sort of pipe in some crowd noise at different times. That's been quite different from what I'm used to walking around the concourse on a normal game day. Yeah, you have to be in like the top 1% in terms of actual live innings of baseball, um, Major League Baseball viewed this season. I'm curious, yeah. have you been tracking your steps? I would imagine that if you were training for any kind of distance running or if you had a pedometer, that this would be a banner year right. for, <laughs> for tracking steps. Yeah, I have an Apple Watch that tracks steps. And actually, I do. I get a ton. I average about 15,000. But in a normal season, my job is to just constantly be walking around and checking on my different sites. So I have been getting fewer steps than I normally get, because I was averaging about 18,000 last year, I think. There's a lot of walking in my job, which I like walking around the stadium. And do you think that the crowd noise, the, the fake crowd noise, sounds more real on TV or in the ballpark? Because I, I have no basis for a comparison. And obviously, most of the audience is watching at home on TV, and they are sort of the intended recipients. But also, right. the players want to have that atmosphere and feel like it's a, a real game in some sense. So I wonder whether it's kind of calibrated more for remote viewing or for in the ballpark. Like if you closed your eyes while you were walking around out there, would you be fooled for even a second? Yeah, I would say it probably is working better for TV. When I've watched games on TV, it almost seems normal when you're, you know, just sort of half paying attention. At mm -hmm. the ballpark, it, um, I will not mistake it for actual crowd noise. Um, partly because of just, you know, it's a constant same decibel, it seems like. And I'm sitting in the outfield, and I believe they're only piping in the noise on the other half of the stadium. So it's like I have speakers right above, above me that never seem to have any crowd noise piped in. So, yeah, sounds slightly different than in-person actual people cheering when you're sitting in the outfield. And has the, the growth of the seat fleet changed your perception of the park at all when it was 
it was first started, you know, it had sort of the typical um, behind home plate and sort of down the lines. But right. um, it seems like every time I turn on a Mariners broadcast this year, there are more of those cardboard cutouts. It's a pretty impressive array of them. Has it made it feel full or does the fact that you're seeing them from behind so often <laughs> kind of shatter the illusion for you? No, I think it actually, when I'm look when I'm watching the game, it has made it, um, you know, the optical illusion that the stadium actually is somewhat full. Obviously, it doesn't look like my section has any real people in it. But when it's in your uh, peripheral view, it definitely is uh, an improvement from a comp- completely empty stadium, I would say. And yes, they have added them. Uh, continuously because we continue to sell them. It's awesome how the seat fleet has done. How many people are actually in the park other than the players? So, you know, people like you, personnel, staff, security, whoever it is actually there, because I don't have a great sense of that. You sometimes see isolated figures when you you get a wide shot of the stands, but there are a lot fewer shots of the stands now, I think, for obvious reasons. You don't get the, like, in-between pitch crowd reactions and the faces and the building suspense and all of that. Most of the focus is on the field and on the players, which... I am fine with, I think maybe is actually an improvement, but it does mean that I don't have a great sense of how many people are standing around or doing something out there. Yeah, I think the majority of people in the ballpark are made up of the two teams and the staff. There's obviously security around. Those guys I'll see walking around. That's about it in terms of people who I see in the outfield. I'll see security and I'll see our housekeeping team. And that's it. Who's out there? I see baseball ops people, um, you know, they'll sit behind home plate and watch the game. Obviously, the media is there, but not a lot of people in the outfield with me. How do you get this job? (laughs) And is there someone who does this job for every team? Because I I looked and just, you know, your title, I think, is, if not unique, at at least unusual. It is. Okay. So, but I assume there are people doing these duties. But how did you get to this point? Yeah. So out of college, I was just looking for a part-time job while I searched for other jobs. Um, And that was... Again, in 2012, I started with the Giants in their Giants dugout store, um, just working as a sales associate. That obviously was a pretty fun season. Um, and so I stuck on after that, after our second World Series championship. And I just, you know, worked my way up from there, became a supervisor, and then moved up to the Pacific Northwest in 2015 where I spent a year working for the Rainiers um, and that was a lot of fun and then came to the Mariners in 2016 as a retail manager, assistant manager to start and then started this position three seasons ago. So um, the souvenir manager title is unique. My main duties are a retail manager But I think, you know, because we also deal with the game use and autograph memorabilia, um, that's sort of where that came to be. And other teams don't all have this because we do all of our merchandise in-house here at the Mariners. Uh And we're just one of a handful of teams that still do that. 
a lot of teams are run by third-party companies like we are with our vendors inside with Centerplate, where they they run all the food inside. Some teams also have them run the merchandise, but we do it all in-house here at the Mariners. So if someone wants to purchase your handiwork to buy one of these balls that you have tracked down, how do they do that? On our auction website, all of our home run balls are being put up on there. All of them are getting put up on the auction website. You won't see every single home run ball we get uh, right after we get it because I don't want to flood our own market of home run balls to sell. Mm -hmm. So we are holding some for later, but we will always have a couple up on our website. And this just occurred to me, are you able to tell a home run ball by the sight of it? I mean, is there usually a a clear mark? Is it deformed or scuffed in some way? Can you tell by sight? I feel like, so the main way to tell, it's very obvious to tell one from a batting practice ball. I feel like what they're doing, at least this year, is they're not rubbing any of the mud on any of the batting practice balls. So those Mm. balls are very pearly white. So just telling a ball that got used in a game, it does look quite different from a BP ball. And I'm kind of surprised the home runs, most of them look perfectly intact when they get to me. There have been a few that will be scuffed or it will, you know, it'll have the black paint from the batter's bat. Um, But most of them are perfectly intact. Uh Uh-huh. There's a a humidor in T-Mobile Park for the first time this season in uh, Fenway City Field and T-Mobile. They installed humidors this season, but I don't know what the effect of that is. I'm not sure whether that means more homers for you or fewer because uh, it depends on the atmosphere and how the balls are stored and how they were stored before. And obviously it's not Chase Field or or Coors Field where they're necessarily trying to keep the home run rate down there. Exactly. uh, Yeah. All right. Well, we will link to where people can buy those balls if they're interested, and they can find you on Twitter at Sean underscore Guiney, G-U-I-N-E-Y. And it was a pleasure to talk to you. You have a a unique job in baseball, or at least a unique title in baseball. (laughs) We have now talked to 100% of the souvenir managers for Major League (laughs) Baseball teams. Thanks, Sean. All right. Yeah, thank you, guys. All right, that will do it for today. Sean just sent me a picture of the Gallo home run ball that he mentioned way up in the third deck, so you can see where he got it, and it has its fancy authentication sticker on it. I will link to that on the show page as well. Thanks again to him for coming on and to you for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Sean. Michael Hunter, Sam Raker, Cameron McSorley, and Dominique Banfield. Thanks to all of you. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. Thanks as always to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We had a holiday week this week, so it's going to be a short podcast week too. Perhaps we will do a bonus episode for you a little later this month. But for now, we hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. Dream catcher in the rear view.